Good morning, everyone. Um, our second Bible reading today is taken from Galatians chapter 3, verse 15 to 29. And I've got that on page 1130. Galatians chapter 3. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture doesn't say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but to you and your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and is according to the promise. Thank you, uh, Jonna, for reading God's word to us this morning on Galatians uh, chapter 3. Well, uh, we're going to pray and ask God's grace and enabling to understand this passage this morning. So let me pray and let's look at God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, O oh Lord, that you give us understanding of this word this morning. Uh, and we pray for your spirit to be at work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, this morning we return to our study of the book of Galatians. And I want to encourage you uh, to uh, keep your Bibles open to this passage and certainly uh, encourage you also to read uh, the book of Galatians if you can uh, so that we are better equipped to, uh, to work our way through uh, this book. A very quick recap, because it's been a few weeks since we last looked at Galatians. The people who were bringing the Galatians into confusion were the false teachers known as the Judaizers. These false teachers insisted that in addition to faith in Christ, there must be submission to the law of Moses and also to certain ceremonial laws. They were adding works to faith. Faith in Jesus Christ alone was not sufficient, was not enough according to them. They wanted the Christians in the church to live as Jews. 
For men, it meant circumcision. And these false teachers wanted to do what God would never allow anyone to do. And that is to somehow make a contribution to their acceptance with God. And as we study the book, we need to keep in mind that the primary focus and overall question that the Apostle Paul is addressing to the churches in Galatia, which is today in modern Turkey, was this. How can a person be made right with God? Certainly that is the focus in the first few chapters of the book. Or if I was to put it another way, it means how is a person justified before God? In the first part of chapter 3, the Apostle Paul had made it clear that justification and receiving of the promised Holy Spirit is by faith and not by any works. Last time we looked at Galatians chapter 3, 10 to 14, and we dealt with the matter of the law and the place of faith. And to make the point, the Apostle Paul asked a series of rhetorical questions from the church, from Christians in Galatia. He asked questions like this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, O Galatians? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He asked them. Did you suffer so many things in vain? If it did, it was in vain. And then he said, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing by faith? Did the Galatians receive the Holy Spirit by circumcision? What do you think? Yes or no? No, right? Did the Galatians receive the Holy Spirit by keeping the moral law? No. Did the Galatians receive the Holy Spirit by observing certain dietary and ceremonial laws? No. How did they receive the Holy Spirit and become Christians? By hearing with faith. 3.5 This is the only answer, friends. Paul preached the gospel to them. They believed the message by the working of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And they became Christians. And so justification by faith, which is a, a tremendous theme, thinking about the Reformation this year, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. We will hopefully have some of the discussions taking place uh, on uh, 29th about justification and the sovereignty of God and so forth. Certainly my group, which has been assigned the group to deal with the Reformation, uh, together with uh, another group, we have been discussing this topic by the time we finish, I think our groups will be thorough reformed theologians, right? That's the Wednesday night group, by the way, so just in case. So, Paul, uh, so we, let's come back here. So justification by faith in Christ alone and receiving of the Holy Spirit goes together. And Paul also referred to Abraham to make the point in Galatians 3 and verse 6. So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That is, Abraham believed God and so he did not earn his salvation by works. Abraham believed God and received salvation by faith. And so if the Galatians want to be part of the true Old Testament community, then they needed to imitate the faith of Abraham. And that's the point. 
And this morning, we come to a fairly complex and challenging passage uh, in our text, Galatians chapter 3. I kind of want to work through verses 15 to 22 because there's so much material after that as well. But uh, we could have worked through the whole text. That would have taken us substantial time to do justice to it. So 15 to 22, entitled the message, Law and Promise. What is Paul on about in this section? What is the relationship between law and the promise God made to Abraham? By referring to Abraham, was Paul then pitting Moses against Abraham? Did God annul the promise he made to Abraham in the giving of the law to Moses? Was the law permanent or temporary? Is there some contradiction here between the law and the promise of God? Where does the law fit in with the words of Jesus, that he came to fulfill the law, not to, to, to abolish anything? So these are all complex things, and I must say I've read and read and read so much this past week, <laughs> trying to work our way through this, this, this passage. So I don't want to make it extra complicated this morning. It is God's word for us, so just two things. You see the promise and you see the law. You see, Paul begins this section, if you keep your Bibles open, please, we see by giving a human example or illustration because normally we can easily identify with a human example, right? We can usually identify with that. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Paul is talking about a human covenant. For example, if someone writes a will, that will is binding since it has been ratified and confirmed as a legal document. All right? Covenants are binding even in a secular society. No one can add to the will or annul or alter the will except by the author of the will. Now certainly a will cannot be altered after the writer of that will as deceased. We know that. Right? And so get this thing here. And so now if on the human level a will is binding, then how much more are God's promises binding? So some of us would have written our wills, right? Maybe you have. Right? We have a, a will which is we wrote that a few years ago, and we've been discussing that in the last few weeks. We need to renew our will, write a new will, just in case something happens to us. All the millions of dollars that we have in our bank will be distributed to our kids equally. No. <laughs> it won't happen that way. They can live in faith and hope. <laughs> All right. The point is, yeah, so the will is binding. Now, if on the human level a will is binding, then how much more are God's promises binding? So, having given the example of a human covenant, now Paul goes on to refer to the promise made to Abraham by God, which is binding. So, look at verses 16 and 17, please. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean, the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So this word promise comes up a few times in this section in Galatians chapter 3, a few times in the last verses here. 
what were these promises that God made to Abraham? What were they, friends? Well, the, in, in, um, in Genesis chapter 12, we have these words. The Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And then he said this, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So in Genesis chapter 12, we see that the promises included the promise of land, the promised land of Canaan. And we see also, friends, that God said to Abraham that all the families of the earth will be blessed through him. And so this is a reference to the Gentiles who would also believe in God. In the Great Commission, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, all right? And so in heaven, we'll have people from every tribe, nation, language, people groups in heaven. God's gospel is going around the world. And so these are the promises that God made to Abraham and his offspring. Now the original offspring of Abraham was Isaac, we know that, but there is more to the promise that God made to Abraham. And the question is, how can the whole world be blessed by Jews living in the promised land? How? Now, that's the question. See, Paul realized that both the land that was promised, right, and the people groups were ultimately spiritual in its nature. The purpose of God was not just to give the land to, of Canaan to the Jews, but to grant salvation, which is a spiritual blessing through the ultimate seed. And Paul plays here with the ambiguity of this word seed or offspring. The word offspring can be similar to the word sheep or seed or, or, or fish, which can be both singular and plural. Now, Abraham's seed will be a multitude, Genesis chapter 12. And the point that we must not miss here is that the promise as a reference to a single seed, all right? Which is who? Ultimately, Christ. Ultimately, it is Jesus. And so in Genesis, why do I say that? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and we read this, the first gospel was mentioned there in Genesis 3, 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his seal. So God first and foremost promised the Savior in the garden. That was the first promise of Jesus. Did you know that? I'm sure you do. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, God in his grace and in his kindness and in his mercy and his goodness, what did he do? He promised the Savior. And so that promise keeps working through. And now we see that it will culminate in the coming of Christ, the Messiah, the one promised to Abraham. What a blessing, what a promise Jesus Christ is the true offspring. is the party to the covenant which God made with the patriarch Abraham. 
And this is why Paul could say this in Galatians 3 and verse 8. He says this, and the scripture foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations be blessed. So the gospel is preached to Abraham. And you know what, friends? Later Jesus said this in John chapter 8, verse 56. A stunning statement. A stunning statement. You know, the, the, the guys were almost going to stone Jesus for this. And Jesus said this, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And then later, if you look at John chapter 8, Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I How amazing is that? And so in verse 17, as we work in our text, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So when God gave Moses the law 430 years later, what happened to the promise of God? That's the question, isn't it? He gave a promise 430 years before the law and gave the law 430 years after the promise. And so Paul gives us a history lesson here, does he not? The lesson is that Abraham came before Moses. Therefore, promise came before the law. You're with me, right? Okay. Is, is then God at opposition with himself? Did he cancel the promise? Did, is God at conflict with his own words? Has he been abandoned? In the giving of the law, did God annul the promise? Did God suddenly go to plan B, so to speak? And the promise is about what God will do, and the law is what we must do. Okay? And so John Stott makes this point. He says this, which is helpful. The promise sets forth a religion of God, God's plan, God's grace, God's initiative. But the law sets forth a religion of man, man's duty, man's works, man's responsibility. The promise standing for the grace of God only had to be believed, but the law standing for the works of men had to be obeyed. And so when we talk about the promise or the promises of God, we can be assured that his promises are yes and amen in Jesus. The way of salvation was always by believing in God. Now the Judaizers in this church here in Galatia were trying to make the law an addendum as it were to the promise. They were trying to add the law to this promise. But what is God's word here? God's promise to Abraham was a covenant with Abraham which he will not turn, out, turn, turn around with. It had the legal status so to speak of a will after the will has gone through the probate, so to speak. It could not be revoked. It could not be annulled. The law could not replace the promise. And so Paul says in verse 18, for if the inheritance comes from the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. What, what is all of this about? You see, friends, when a, when a person receives an inheritance, right, the beneficiary of the inheritance receives it on the basis of a binding legal promise declared in a document. 
For example, if you leave, um, you write a will for someone, right? And the person, once you deceased, they'll get that inheritance because it is written there in that will. It is binding. The inheritance is by promise. The promise cannot be abandoned. And so when Moses came along, God did not undo what he solemnly declared, promised and will. God gave it. And so Gentile Christians who are non-Jews inherit all the blessings in Christ just as the Jewish Christians do. And this must have been a terrible shock to the Jews of Paul's day and even to Jewish Christians who had been raised to view Gentiles, non-Jews, who are unworthy of respect. They would even call the Gentiles dogs, so to speak. So can you imagine if you're a Jew, and even if you're a Christian Jew, you're sitting there in the church in Galatia, and Paul is saying this to you. How would you feel? <laughs> but now both share all the blessings in Christ equally because of the promise. Now then, the question is about the law. Have a look with me, please, in your Bibles to verse 19. What then is the purpose of the law? Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels and an intermediate. I'll tell you what, verse 19b, there has been so much written on it. Absolutely. Verse 20, there's been so much written on this whole thing of interpretation said, and I'm not going to go through all of that this morning. Is Paul advocating lawlessness or what we may call antinomianism without the law? Paul is not saying that he's against the law. Certainly not. We know this only too well when we look at other passages in the New Testament. But for the purpose of our text here this morning, in the Galatian context of the false teachers, Paul is saying that the law does not and cannot save us. That's the point that we have to see here. This is not Paul promoting antinomianism, of course not. Right? Now, if we receive the Spirit, not by the law, but by faith, and our faith is accounted for righteousness in God's sight, and if we are justified by faith and not by works of the law, and also if 430 years before the law, God saved Abraham by faith, then the question is, what's the purpose of the law? Good question. Why the law? Why the Ten Commandments? And of course, all the other laws that God gave through Moses. But particularly, let's look at, for example, the Ten Commandments. We do know that the law, the Ten Commandments, was, was given by God himself, right? He gave it. It was a unique display of his power and is revealing of the law by himself. The law was given to Moses in one of the most remarkable ways on Mount Sinai as we read in Exodus chapter 20, as we read in Exodus 20 this morning. Let me just read Exodus 19, a few verses there before that. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many may perish. Also let the priest to come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come to, the, to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. 
And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. And so Moses went down to the people and told them. And then the Lord came down on the mountain amidst all the thunder and lightning. And the mountain was shaking violently. That's the Hebrew word that is used there. It didn't just have a little shake. When God descended on Mount Sinai, it shook violently. And the trumpets were sounding. And then all these commandments given by God, he spoke it. The first four commandments show us our duty to God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself idols to, God, to worship. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. All right? The last six show us our duty to our fellow man. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not commit adultery, uh, murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or possessions. And look what happened then in Exodus 20, 18 to 21. Now when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. You know, just think about it. You know, this is, this is God. And how much sometimes we have the temptation to bring him down to our level, isn't it? Yes, he is our father, I know that. And that's the amazing thing. But he is also God. And sometimes I think we have lost the majesty and the splendor and the awesomeness of God. Certainly our world, our society has lost the awesomeness of God, right? They have lost the mighty powerfulness of God. When he descended, the mountains trembled and the people were feared. And the voice of the Lord himself was heard and he gave the Ten Commandments. What a dramatic event. Now did the people keep all of the law? While Moses was on the mountain and God was talking to them, what did they do? Aaron and the people, what did they do, friends? They built the golden calf. Remember that? God had just said, you shall not have any idols. You shall not bow down before anything and worship. They're already starting to do that. See, these are the very people who had said they will obey God. So why did God give the law knowing that it cannot be kept perfectly? I asked the question myself. Why, why give the commandments if, if you know that I can't keep it? For example, now there are many reasons perhaps why the law has been given. So let, let me just say this. It shows us what is right and wrong. For example, the respect and value of human life, you shall not murder, is clearly stated. Or the rights of ownership to property, respect the property of others, you shall not steal. 
or for example, the, 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 our constitution, uh, the, the laws of this land in the Western world, and particularly here in Australia, is based on the Ten Commandments. We may not acknowledge that, but it is there. Well, this is one reason, there may be many other reasons, but look at our text here. It was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Two reasons, I'll give you very quickly on why the law is. It was added because of transgression. Friends, the law was given to show us the extent of our sin. It was added because of sin. Fallen, sinful mankind, the law was necess the necessary standard of God. It was given to show the sinful nature of sin. The law is like an x-ray. It's like a scan. All right? I, it's a frightening thing to go for a scan, right? Maybe I've never been to one so far. Uh, let's not be frightening because you don't know what to expect, right? If the doctor says to you, go and have a scan, you might feel, well, what am I to, to, to expect with this? It's a spiritual scan. And it comes around and it examines the heart. It sees. It shows how we fall short of God's standard and his glory. And the Ten Commandments in Exodus serve to show us our shortcomings or our sinfulness. Martin Luther put it this way. The right use and end of the law therefore is to reveal to a man his sin, his blindness, his misery, his impiety, ignorance, hatred, and contempt of God, death, hell, and judgment, and deserved wrath of God. The law brings the sinner away from what we are merely social, what are merely social norms and conventions, and from his own fond esteem of himself, and brings him in guilty before God. You see, we can start talking about respect classes. You've heard that, right? We need to teach our kids respect and so all good things. But the moral law, God's law, deals with my sin. What is the number one problem in the world today? It might worry. You ask people on the street, what's the number one problem today in the world? Well, they might come up with the economy. All right? Good thing. Australia has reached... Uh, the milestone, I think, in, uh, I, I don't know exactly the figures, but we are in massive debt. That, that's I just heard the headline. I haven't investigated it. For the first time, all economists and other people will know that, right? We have hit a massive level of debt. So that might be a concern. For others, it might be housing affordability. How can you buy a house these days? Right? Another problem for us. For others, it might be the climate might be one issue. And of course, we are concerned for our environment and everything else. But what is the biggest issue, friends? What's the biggest problem? It's me. It's my sin. It's yours. It's the sin in the world. That's the problem. See, so the law was given to spell out the standards of God, to waken people to our sinfulness. The standards cannot be perfectly kept. The, the law reveals sin. We are sinners, and in our self-righteousness, we can be good at commending ourselves to each other, can't we? But we cannot commend ourselves to God by saying, how great I am, O God. 
how great I am, how good I am, what a wonderful person I am. Oh God, you should be so privileged to have me as part of you know, your church. How good is that? See, the law shows us up, friends. We have all failed, have we not, to keep all the commandments perfectly? The number one problem, as I said, in the world is a problem of our sin. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, let me read this. When a newspaper posts the question, what's wrong with the world? The Catholic thinker J.K. Chesterton, who actually loved the Lord, reputedly wrote a brief letter in response. He said this, dear sirs, I am. What's the problem, biggest problem with the world? Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. You see, sin is a violation of God's holy standard. The law shows us how lost we are. Our sin separates us from God and shuts us out from God. For the wages of sin is death. Our memory text. What else? But the gift, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our and so it tells us how spiritually sick we are in our sinful state and how much we need God's intervention. One writer puts it this way, the Lord feeds into the promise. It is the on-ramp to the gospel highway. The more we know the law, the more we see our sin. And the more we see this, the more we confess that we need a Savior. And what a blessing that we have the Savior. Yeah? Because each time I look at the commandments, what do I see? I see the, the law is like a mirror. Now, friends, most of us would have stood before the mirror this morning. Maybe you haven't. I'm, I'm not asking you to say yes or no, all right? But when you stand in front of the mirror, what do you see? You see the wrinkles, perhaps? When I stand, I see my gray hair. I see I've lost hair. I see I'm gradually you know, in the process of aging. No matter how much, now I'm not, put, I'm not saying I'm putting makeup, right? I'm not saying that. <laughs> but no amount of makeup or anything can cover the true state of ourselves when we stand barely in front of the mirror. It actually tells us who we are. The law is like that mirror. It tells me who I am. It tells me all my faults and my sins. And the law then drives us to Jesus. The law is a restraint, as it were, and drives me to come to Christ. The law is a reminder to me that, yes, I need to be aware, but I can never make it by myself. The other day I was driving on the Great Ocean Road, a beautiful road, by the way, to drive. It was a 60 zone. I didn't get caught, so don't get It's okay. It was a 60 zone, and I was driving perhaps around 70 maybe I hope my speedometer was wrong and just come around the corner and guess who I see huh? a police car just with the gun you know with the uh, with the speed guns there just standing there and I said to the kids and Rose I hope I haven't broken the law I'll soon find out <laughs> I've been going with trepidation to my post box every day you see what we do, right? Naturally. When you see a car on the corner, on the side of the road, we naturally tend to reduce the speed, right? You have a police car driving behind you. If it's a 60 zone, you go 55. 
You know what I mean? It's a constant reminder. The law, the law. I'll be in trouble. You see, friends, we turn to Jesus, the perfect Savior. It is in him. Martin Luther said it well when he said, the, he said this. The law with its... Let me, okay. The law with its function does contribute to justification, not because it justifies, but because it impels one to the promise of grace and makes it sweet and desirable. Therefore, we do not abolish the law, but we show its true function and use, namely, that it is a most useful servant impelling to Christ. That is what we see, friends. You see, so the law, verses 19 to 22, 20 and 22, let me read that quickly. The other reason for the giving of the law, now as an intermediary implies, you can see that in your text there, but verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise made by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So two things the Lord does, points me to my transgressions, points me to the Savior. So this morning, The question for us is, the law is certainly not opposed to the promise and does not contradict the promise. It actually is co it complements it. It points us to the promise to Jesus. God deals with us according to his promise and not according to our performance. All right? And when we repent and turn away from our sin and cry to God for mercy, crying out to the Lord, search me, O God. Search my heart. I want to trust you alone. Then we experience his amazing grace. His amazing grace as we sang this morning that John Newton experienced. This is God's grace. This is the good news. The promise Savior has come. The promise that God made to Abraham has not been abolished. It is fulfilled. And the law points me to the Savior because none of us are perfect here. Are you? Are you perfect? Never sinned in word, deed, and thought? We have. And so I ask you this morning, by the grace of God, through the Spirit of God, ask God to search your heart and my heart. Where do I stand with this Jesus today? And if you're a Christian here this morning, how are our hearts before the Lord today? Do we thank him for the promise in Christ made known to you personally? And how does knowing this grace in Christ shape our lives, our relationships, and our service for him? Do we thank God that God is the God who keeps his word? Yeah? If God changes his promises, we're all gone. <laughs> he does not break his promise he keeps his word and he has kept it in his son Jesus and the law points me to this savior say Lord I see my sin I see all the deep stuff that goes on in this place in my mind I know I'm a sinner but I'm trusting Christ who kept the law perfectly for me have you done that? Or are you going out from this place feeling guilty and burdened? Maybe God is speaking to you. Or 
why did you go out from this place liberated and freed from the burden of the heaviness, sin, and everything else? And can you go out from this place rejoicing in the God of our salvation? Can you? I hope you can. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for helping us look through this difficult uh, passage. Uh, we thank you for the promise first displayed in the Garden of Eden, then to Abraham, the promise that was kept perfectly in the coming of your son. We thank you for the law. It's reminded to us of our sin and the need of the Savior. And so, Father, this morning we pray that we will take sin seriously. That we will repent of our sins. That we will trust in the mercy of our Savior Jesus Christ to transform our lives. And that we will experience that grace continuously to be a gracious people who have received much from your hand of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.